You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. If you want to learn about the music industry and you don't know where to go, tune in to WP88.7. And of course, on the podcast network that you listen to, I'm your professor, David Kirkfield, along with Dr. Esteban. Marconi, Emeritus. Emeritus. And we're very, very happy to be with you today. Um, we're going to talk with Paul Batcher, talent buyer at Brooklyn Bowl. But before correct. that, we want to uh, give some thanks. Do we want to give thanks? Yeah. All right. We'll do it. First, we want to give thanks to the folks at Van Dyne Bruno Inc. and White Hat Management. With artists like Dave Matthews, Three Doors Down, St. Vincent, Kiss, Zach Brown, Tima Likes Music. There's only one place to go for your band's business management. Go to vb-cpa.com when you're ready. And we want to give thanks to Christine Oi. Bay, a wealth manager at the Forefront Group. Christine has helped professionals and amateurs from all over the world manage their investments, plan out for their retirement when you're thinking of building a bridge to your financial future. Think about the Forefront Group and go to Christine at Forefront.com. Leave the last they off. Oi, off for savings. Oi, they, you ruined it, yes. The and oi off, yes. Leave that oi off. And then we want to mention that William Patterson University's music business program, once again, for the sixth time uh, listed by Billboard, rated, ranked by Billboard as one of the best in the world, not just the country, but the world. Hooray, hooray. That must make you feel good because you st- you basically started it in the 80s. Yes, we got uh, as far as we could get, I guess. <laughs> there we go. Listed last in the Billboard rankings only because of our W as uh, the one of the last letters in the alphabet. Yes, I was thinking we should change the name of our university to A. William Patterson University. Yes, that might make it. Then we'd be close to the top. And then we want to mention Managing Your Band, 7th edition. is It is out now. You should be reading it. You shouldn't even be listening to this. You should be reading it or listening to the audiobook. I'm kidding. There's no audiobook. Maybe if you pay us, we'll make one for you. It's an ebook. It is an ebook. Yes. So read it with your eyes and enjoy it. So now here we are with Paul Batcher. So, Paul, I noticed from your resume on uh, LinkedIn, you've been a talent buyer in the probably the best rooms in New York City area, moving, I wouldn't say up or sideways or whatever, but someone who from knitting factory, city winery, cutting room over now to Brooklyn Bowl. So how'd you do it? What's the trick? Yeah, thank you for saying that. Uh, I tend to agree. Um, one thing to note is that they're all, those are all independent venues. Uh, at yeah. least they um and so, you know, while there's some pretty amazing historic clubs in New York, Irving Plaza and Brooklyn Steel and Terminal 5, typically those are uh, under the umbrella of one of the larger promoters of Live Nation and AEG, Bowery Presents. And so you know, I think most people who are getting started in the industry would love to work for one of those country companies because they do uh, control and dominate the flow of touring traffic in the major markets like New York. But they're really competitive jobs to get from the get-go. And so if if you're looking to break into the industry and, and start to get a foothold and understand the vocabulary and, and the fundamentals and the processes that go into booking and negotiating deals and, and producing concerts, uh, it's an easier entry into the independent scene where there's not as there's not a giant HR department. It's just a guy who owns a club who could use an extra hand. And it's not as formal of a procedure of of applying 
to a job on LinkedIn. When I, my first jobs I got in the industry at, at pianos and cutting room were both unpaid internships mm-hmm. that were a result of me physically going to the venues. It wasn't even a cold email. Um, so I would take the train into the city from Connecticut where I was living with my parents and knock on doors. A lot of them, you know, music venues typically aren't open during the day. Um, they don't open until five or six at night. I didn't even realize that. And so I'd go in at noon and start knocking on Mercury Lounge. Uh, and of course, no one was there. And so it was a complete waste of time. Um, but a couple of places that were open were the cutting room and pianos because they served lunch. And so I was able to just talk to somebody and letting them know that, hey, I'm familiar with your venues. I've come here as a fan. I've worked, I, I worked at Ticketmaster. So I kind of used that as a, I'm from the music industry, even though the job didn't have anything to do with booking whatsoever. It was really just a sales and marketing job. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think I showed enough enthusiasm and competence and just, you know, passion for the industry that they did let me hang around a couple of times a week initially just putting up posters, um, updating ticket links. If they added a new band to the bill, you know, sending out email blasts, um, working the box office, Mm -hmm. uh, an hour. And, you know, when, when I was at the venue, you start asking people questions more, you, you learn how the box office works. You see how, what time is load in and sound check and hospitality and how settlement works. You know, I wasn't doing any of these things, but I was watching them happen. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I just, I began to just become more familiar and more comfortable with the environment that was, you know, initially foreign to me. And mm-hmm. then, you know, like most opportunities, it, timing is everything. And, and um, the talent buyer at the cutting room where I was assisting decided to move back um, to Colorado. And, you know, I didn't take on a, a full plate of responsibility, but I took on a big portion of it because I was the only one there. And, mm-hmm. Like I said, since it was just an independent club like with one owner, um, it was his call to make. And he liked me and, and gave me the opportunity to at least have a business card that said talent buyer and start reaching out to agencies on behalf of the venue. Um, and from there, I was able to, you know, actually create a, a resume and and shop it around to some of the agents I knew when I was ready to start poking around and seeing, you know, how do I get into not just a mom and pop club, but into the greater ecosystem of the touring industry with a national promoter who's booking multiple markets and multiple size rooms and getting more face time with um, William Morris and CAA and Paradigm at the time and, and the bigger agencies. So mm-hmm. I think via, via the independent uh, network was uh, much more achievable than trying your luck applying for a booking assistant job at AEG, which is going to get flooded and, and probably is going to go to somebody who knows somebody at the company. Mm-hmm. So you were, um, you finished at University of Connecticut? Yes. Mm-hmm. Your degree? And your degree was in what? History. Ah. And did it prepare you for this? No, not whatsoever. I don't think uh, a formal education is really necessary for uh, this job. Um, sure. Aside from some basic math. Um, uh, I, I just happen to enjoy history a lot and... Um, you know, obviously it helps your communication skills. This job is so much about writing emails uh, and mm-hmm. being on the phone, um, you know, listening, uh, actively listening and responding intelligently and, and creatively and thoughtfully is um, what can set you apart. And so those sorts of things, I guess, uh, um, you know, are, are benefits of a liberal arts education. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm a bit pessimistic about anyone who feels that they need to study undergrad music industry in order to be successful in the business. I don't believe in that. Mm-hmm. Well, we obviously we run a program here, but uh, we find that basically what you're saying, it's that person has the interpersonal skills, the person that's very personable, person that understands that this business is a business of relationships. And uh, we can have someone sit there with all A's uh, and not have an personality and get nowhere and then we can have the opposite happen but we try to give them all the tools so that um for instance if they're in an internship they may be a step or two ahead of the other people that are in the internship because they at least know the jargon and we've had um i forget from the cutting room and also city winery we've had um representatives right dave on in the past uh, i can't remember who owns the cutting room paul steve walter and chris noth Steve Walter. We've had Steve Walter. Yes, we've had Steve on. Right. Yeah. Okay, so 
I guess getting to the size of these venues is about how many, what's the capacity? If we look at the uh, where you are now, of course, Brooklyn Bowl versus City Winery, which is still very, uh, well, they're all very popular still now. Yeah, the the original was Pianos, which was 100 capacity, which is basically just booking local bands. And, you know, you put four bands on a bill, you expect them just to bring 20 of their friends and family. And then throughout the night, you get 80 people through the room. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that was really the model of that, just super volume booking. The bills were not cohesive at all. It would be a, you know, electronic pop duo followed by a, you know, eight piece funk band followed by a, a death metal trio, you know, and, right. And so people come to see the band that they were there for and then they leave. Um, and so it doesn't mean for a very like full night, you're just going to support your friends. But, you know, that was a business model in there. And then they had DJ nights and, you know, it was really just a bar business um, more so than like proper concert promotion. Um, but it did get me used to like managing a calendar and volume booking and um, just like trying to act in a professional capacity with very low stakes. I think that's like mm -hmm. a, a good little kiddie pool, so to speak. Uh, cutting room um, was 185 seated, maybe it's 250 seated. Uh, and then we could pull the tables and chairs to do like 400 standing room. Um, mm. It's much older audience. You know, they, they prioritize food and drink service. So they don't like to clear the tables. You know, you want your per heads to be, you know, 30 and $40 by having people order a burger and a beer rather than mm. just kind of having one beer and, and watching the show. Um so, you know, the programming for that room is very much with that in mind. Hey, like, let's make sure we're bringing in an audience that has money to spend here. And we're not just doing a a, a three act indie rock bill where people are going to have one bill, uh, one mm -hmm. beer, because, you know, the, the expenses of, of that room and having the kitchen were significant. So, mm -hmm. you know, comedy was working well there. Cabaret was working well there. We did a lot of Broadway off night stuff on Mondays uh, when when Broadway was dark. Um, and then moving on to Knitting Factory, that was much more of just a, like, indie rock venue, um, a lot of hipster um, competing against Babies All Right and Mercury Lounge and Rough Trade, some of the other 250, 300 cap rooms in the market. Um, yeah. And that was one where we were, you know, th those other rooms were just more desirable generally um, on the, you know, everyone has their, every agency, every manager has what they think should, is like the most prestigious rooms in a particular market. Mm -hmm. um, in New York, I'd say it was always Rough Trade followed by Babies All Right and Mercury Lounge. And then kind of further back was Knitting Factory. And so that was a, a situation where I really had to like mm -hmm. just proactively call agencies trying to get avails that weren't coming my way naturally because they just didn't love the room. And so you had to kind of do more work than someone who's just picking up the phone. When you're booking the hottest room, you don't have to go out and fish for anything. It's all coming to you. And so mm -hmm. you know, working for a club like Knitting Factory was a good exercise and you know, the phone's not ringing uh, with really, really hot stuff. So like, what are you going to do about it? And, you know, trying to to go see acts at a lower, even lower level than 300 and and make relationships on the DIY level and, and talk to the band themselves so that when the agent is saying, hey, you should play Rough Trade, they were saying, well, actually, Paul came to our show and we really thought that was cool of him. And so we're going to play Knitting Factory because at the end of the yeah. day, the artist, artist is the decision maker. And if you can form a relationship with the artist or manager directly, that will supersede the agent. Um, so the agent doesn't want you going around their back, you know, but if you have that relationship with an artist first, then, mm -hmm. you know, you can certainly plant those seeds that say, Hey, I'm a supporter of yours, like whatever money you need, I'll pay it. Um, but, you know, I'd like to work with you and and I believe in your mission. And, and sometimes that resonates with artists. So mm -hmm. Factory is 300 moving on to city winery was also 300, but it was seated. Um, so again, that was kind of back to the cutting room model of, bringing in an older crowd that can eat and drink and that, you know, and so you're booking more older folk stuff, Steve Earle and um, uh, I mean, Brandy Carlisle did a, a benefit there, but that kind of uh, Americana folk um, music for, for a bit of an older crowd. And then moving over to Brooklyn Bowl is a thousand GA capacity. Um, and that is, you know, also it, it tends to skew older, um, but with the bowling and the food and you know, we try to just book artists that are like um, conducive for just a fun party. Like we don't have a lot of like super niche, like metal or techno stuff because we have so many casual people who are just coming to the venue to bowl and hang out and listen to some live music that we don't want to turn them off with um, really, uh, really niche stuff. So mm -hmm. 
definitely like a party booking vibe. So the theme here is that every venue has a different like mission and booking philosophy and, and demographic. And so you have to tailor your approach to, you know, what the needs of the venue are. And those are dictated by the owner of the venue, the GM, um, you know, once you get to more of a, a live nation level where you're just strictly promoting concerts, it doesn't matter if it's an all ages hip hop show or, um, you know, a country show, uh, you're, 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 you're ex expected to cut a deal that's going to make money on ticket sales as well as the bar. But uh, mm -hmm. for a lot of venues I've worked since they've had these full kitchens, um, the priority is get, was getting a crowd in who were going to utilize the kitchen and the bowling and, and we're 21 plus. And so I haven't had too much experience like booking younger acts because the venues that I've worked for have demanded that, you know, they need a crowd who can has more disposable income and is willing to come and, and spend money and, and party at the venue. Mm -hmm. So basically uh, with a headliner, um, how does the contract work? I mean, is it standard, you know, percentage of the door? Uh, is there a guarantee? Um, what usually happens in a room this size? All the above, it varies um, depending on the artist's history in the market uh, or surrounding markets or, um, you know, if there's a new album coming out, like that, that'll affect um, how much we're paying an artist. Um, we typically, you know, the most money you could usually ever make is with an aggressive door percentage deal where there's no money guaranteed, but, um, you know, we'll offer 75% of the door depending on the ticket price. Um which will leave 25% of ticket sales for the venue to cover their operating expenses. And since we have a kitchen and uh, the bowling lanes, like our operating expenses are, are higher than for most clubs of our size. So 25% of ticket revenue on a $25 ticket doesn't even cover our expenses. But since we have no risk um, on the show, like we're inclined to do deals like that because it shows us that the artist is so confident in their ability to make more money on a door percentage than they would on a guarantee that, mm. you know, that confidence and, and belief um, that they're going to go and travel and book hotels and play a show without any money guaranteed is a really good sign for me. And so there's some, especially a lot of country artists um, are really confident, even, even if like, I think a lot of the promoters in the Northeast are, are nervous about artists they don't know too well. So if uh, a country artist from Texas is coming and saying, um, we'll, we'll take 75% of the door, you don't have to pay us anything up front um that's a, a a good sign for me so we do plenty of door percentages uh typically we offer a door percentage when we're not sure about an, about an artist because it's low low risk for the venue even though we might not cover all of our expenses we're certainly not going to lose money on on the deal mm -hmm. um if it's an artist who wants to try playing brook and bowl and i don't know them very well and they you know have confidence in themselves then i'll say you know if you have confidence in yourself then you, you'll you'll make money on this deal if, if 300 people come um mm -hmm. on the door you'll you know, you'll make three or four grand and that'll cover your expenses. So when, when someone comes back to me and says that, you know, actually we really need 2000 because that'll cover our expenses. Then it's, it's, it's a bit of a red flag that, um, well, you know, you'll make 3000 on this deal if, if the show's going to do what you claim it's going to do. And so, mm -hmm. uh, to be adamant that like, you need more upfront money, um, just in case, um, is, is sometimes a red, a red flag. So we do a lot of door deals. We do plenty of, um, guarantees as well versus a percentage after expenses um which is kind of the most common deal that we'll work with and live nation works with and in those scenarios we'll just we'll basically project what we feel the show is going to do as a, with our promoter instinct no, with the knowledge that we have about the artist history in the market um previous guarantees they've gotten any relevant uh context or information that's come out since their last plays good or bad and we'll assess, hey, the, the, the artist's agent is looking for a $25 ticket. Um, we think this is going to do you know, 500 tickets. Um, we need to cover at least $5,000 of expenses. And so whatever's left over is what we'll offer the artist. So we basically mm -hmm. just have a formula of like, how many tickets do we think we're gonna sell? What's the ticket price? What's that show gross? Um, take out some money that we need to cover expenses and and then we'll we'll offer that to the artist um, mm -hmm. versus a percentage um, where they can end up making more money if um, you know the the show blows out and we take away um, all the expenses and then do a, an eighty five fifteen split after that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then we'll 
we'll sometimes do flat guarantees because a lot of artists we know that they're not going to hit a back end percentage. Um, so if we offer, you know, $3,000 versus 85% after expenses, and we know the show is not going to do more than $400, there's just no way that they're ever going to make more than that $3,000 or whatever was guaranteed. But, you know, we still want to incentivize them to promote hard. So we can do some bonuses where it's like 3000 versus 85, but at 400 tickets, you it's a thousand dollar bonus. And at 500 tickets, it's another thousand dollar bonus. So mm-hmm. even if you fall somewhere in the middle where it's like you didn't sell it out and hit points, but you did really good and therefore you're getting uh, rewarded for it. Uh, I like to provide incentive in, in different ways, whether it's bonuses, whether it's um, ticket rebates or marketing reimbursements or yeah, I, I want to make sure the artist is committed. You know, when you when the more money you guarantee them, the less they have to do to make that money. So mm-hmm. keep that in mind as well. So who determines the ticket price? It's typically the agent, um, but the promoter will have some feedback as well um, based on their market. You know, I work in New York and Philly. So, you know, an agent will typically say, we feel good about a $30 ticket price across the board here for all markets based on, you know, we did a $22 ticket last time or something. Mm-hmm. And in Philly is just a more price sensitive market. So we'll almost always say, let's knock that down, you know, three or $5 just because Philadelphia is, is notoriously more price conscious. Um, and, and so that's a conversation with the agent where, you know, they're getting with the artist manager team and, and what do we think is fair for our audience mm-hmm. and knowing that, you know, here's their demographic and, um, and how much disposable income they probably have. You know, if it's a, if, if it's a young singer songwriter pop act, it's probably going to be a 15 or $20 ticket. If it's an older blues guitarist, it's probably going to be a 35 or $40 ticket, you know, because they know that the audience, you know, has the money to spend. Um, mm-hmm. And once we get those parameters, we'll weigh in with like, Hey, you know, this is not a good time of year. Um, this is, you know, right around the playoff season for the Phillies, which is going to impact ticket sales. And therefore, you know, we need to pay less. Like there's a lot of other things that the promoter has to know about their market um, to give context to the agent of like, w- this ticket price is too high. This time of year is not good. This doesn't work on a weekday. This can only do be a weekend. And so it's, it's an open conversation and agents appreciate, you know, that promoter insight. I was going to ask with those door deals that you do, like the 75% of the door, no guarantee. Is that because you were throwing expenses in there? Is that 75% no expenses or is 75% uh, after expenses? No expenses. No yeah. expenses. And, and that would be an example of the most generous deal we've basically ever given. Um, typically it's 60%. You know, if it's a big agency shopping an artist um, that we know has, does really good business in the South and is trying the Northeast for the first time, and we know it's a great bar, then like we can get aggressive and, and do, but you know, those are all dollar one door deals. Typically it's 60% and we'll scale it up, you know, 60% from dollar one at 300 tickets moves to 65 at 500 tickets moves to 70, 75% at sellout. Mm-hmm. And sellout though, it's a thousand cap room. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's pretty cool. Now go back a second. Cause you just said uh, a phrase, uh, if we kill at the bar or you said something about that, explain that to our listeners, why, you'd be maybe more interested in the bar versus selling lots of tickets. Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, there's only a, a limited number of revenue streams um, within the total pie. You know, there's ticket sales, there's ticket fees, there is ancillary revenue like merch and um, and and the bar and food and beverage and in Brooklyn Bulls case, bowling. Um, and so... Um, you know, we, we like to be aggressive to get artists into the room. We we need shows in order to survive. Like when and when we don't have a show, there's nobody there, and we're and we we pay rent. And there's a lot of expense. You know, staffing the venue. There's there's crazy overhead to run a venue. And if you don't have a show with people there to fill it, then um, you're losing a lot of money. And so we need to be aggressive to you know incentivize offers to play there. And usually, money is you know. Uh, money and, and perception and reputation in the market is are the best things that are going to get you there. And so we need to like offer the artists, you know, 70% of, of the ticket revenue. Um, and so we keep 30%, but uh, you know, 30% of uh, $10,000 gross is, you know, $3,000. And that doesn't come close to covering half of, of, of the operating expenses for a lot of these venues. And so in order to make up the difference, you know, we're relying on bar revenue and, and food and beverage um, to make up that and also get a profit going. So like, 
if, if our expenses for a show are $10,000, we only made $3,000 in um, ticket revenue, but we did a $10,000 bar, then we, we did a $3,000 net profit um, for that show, which is, you know, modest. It's, uh, you know, you're spending a lot of money um, and taking a lot of risk in order to make $3,000. Um, so we're always keeping in mind, what is the crowd like when we're booking a show and how much, you know, we, we can't offer um, 75% of the ticket revenue to an artist that we know has a completely underage crowd and is just going to drink water and is going to do $500 at the bar because we'll lose money on that, on that scenario. I said, you know, if we make $3,000 of revenue, we're at 7,000 in the hole on our two, on our $10,000 expenses. And we only do a thousand dollars at the bar. We just lost $6,000, even if there's a lot of people there. Um, so we need to be mindful of like, is this a really good drinking crowd? And, and we factor that into our offers as well. You know, when we're putting our offers together, we'll, we'll take, you know, what, what's the per cap? What's the per head? That's a common thing you'll hear where it's like, how much money is each person spending at the bar? Um, mm -hmm. You know, really bad is like $5. Really good is like $20. Uh, so when, when I'm putting my offers together, if it's a metal act, if it's a country act, if it's a jam band, then I'm going to project that, you know, 500 people coming um, on a $20 per head is a $10,000 bar night. So I know that, you know, that's going to cover all my operating expenses. And then any money I make on the ticket revenue is going to be a profit. But, you know, if it's a five, if it's a $5 bar night, then it's $2,500. And, and that's just not enough to, to justify, you know, paying an artist a certain amount of money if it's not going to cover your expenses. So it's all, it's all revenue expenses. How much is coming in? How much does it cost to put on this show? Um, and bar revenue is like the number one um, revenue stream that goes only to the venue um, and is really responsible, not just for profit, but for covering up uh, expenses that aren't covered by the ticket revenue because we give so much of the ticket revenue to artists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's always an interesting discussion because most bands think I can sell out. Why are you booking that? We'll call it a that Taylor Swift night instead of me. Um, and it's because they're not they don't realize that the Taylor, for example, the Taylor Swift crowd, they drink versus my band. They don't drink. I had a band uh, I booked. Um, I'm sorry, I managed an artist for a while and his crowd for whatever there are various reasons, but they they were old enough that they just did not drink. A number of them don't drink, and so when I went back, even though we had sold out previous time, uh, six months later, I went back to the venue. They're like, we we kind of don't want to have them here because they don't drink and we can't make any money. And so, mm -hmm. and that was that exact discussion you were just explaining. That I said, but they sold out. And he's like, yeah, but we don't make any money. I said, but they ate. And we had um, Sarah Barnett, who's the GM of your uh, Brooklyn Bowl Nashville on our show a week ago. And she was saying, even on the food, you're not making that much money on the food. There's just so much labor and so much, uh, so many costs built into the food that the bar, that's really where you're looking to, you know, to make your money. Yeah. And so in those instances, like we're just very upfront with the agent for the next time. Hey, like the bar did $500. Um you know, if you want it, we're happy to do it again, but we're going to need to renegotiate the ticket split so that, you know, at sellout, the venue is covering its expenses. And that might even look like, you know, the venue taking more ticket revenue than the artist. But um, at the end of the day, like on, on a per show basis, typically the venue's expenses are higher than the artists. Um, and so, you know, you can't operate in the red and you need to find a way to cut a deal where both artist and venue expenses are being covered. And there's plenty of times where it just doesn't work out. And as much as I love an artist, like, they need $5,000 a night in order to get hotels and, and have the bus and all this stuff. And I know that they're not going to sell more than 300 tickets and the bar is not going to be great. And therefore like, I, I can't book the show because I just know it's going to be a loss and it should go to a, a venue with lower overhead. That's the answer. Like find a venue that's not as expensive to operate. There's plenty of venues out there that have a, you know, they just put a sound engineer um, and a lighting guy and it, you know, it's two people running the entire show. You know, we have like, six stage hands for every single show at Brooklyn Bowl, an audio engineer plus a lighting designer. Um, we have like 12 security guards for every show. So it's just, uh, and, we're, and we're union. So it's not something that we can um, cut back on or, or negotiate. It's just like fixed costs. That uh, is the matter of, of fact. And um, if some, if, you know, an artist is just not able to generate enough revenue to cover those costs and then make a little something, then we have to pass. Mm -hmm. With the, I'm sure you probably don't do it anymore, but with baby bands, did they have to guarantee 
X amount of people would come in or basically were they buying tickets uh, for the show yeah. to play? No, I've, I've never done that. Um, right. um, I'm trying to like, you know, I, I don't book baby bands at Brooklyn Bowl anymore unless I've seen them play or sell out smaller venues. But, you know, when I was booking Knitting Factory or uh, pianos, it just didn't matter. Like, like I said, if you can bring your friends and family, anyone can get together 20 people. Um, so that that doesn't matter too much to me. But once I started booking Knitting Factory, I mean, yeah, you're, you're looking where else have you played? You don't want this to be that. Like, it depends on what kind of room you're booking, but Typically, you don't want it to be their first show unless you're really just booking a, a you know a bar with a little stage in it, um, and you just think the artist is really good. Like there's different reasons for booking an artist. If you are trying to curate a vibe in a bar, and it's an old school 1920s bar with like a cool jazz band, like they might not be worth any tickets out on a hard ticket stage, but like they're a great band and it's a great booking for that bar, mm -hmm. and you're mm -hmm. selling tickets. Uh, there's other places that's just a real stage in a dark room and no one would ever go in there unless they were seeing a band that they loved. And in those instances, you need to do your diligence and make sure that, you know, that band is worth, you know, the 50 tickets or whatever you need to, to break even on your expenses. And typically mm -hmm. I do that by vetting them and saying, where else have you played? Like, let me come see you play and actually see the crowd. Um, and not just that. And like, Oh, like, yeah, we, we played for this show last day. There's a hundred people there, but you were the first of three opener on it. And you didn't mention that. Like People like try to, you know, obviously they, they want to get on big stages and they'll say whatever they need to. to sure. convince sure. yeah, It's the promoter's job to kind of be the gatekeeper and, um, and, and uh, have a good understanding of, of what that, what the value of the band at that moment. Mm -hmm. You ever have a radius clause or not? Yeah, we have a radius clause for every show. Um, uh -huh. It's 60 miles, uh, 120 days, 90 days, something like that. Um, yeah. And, you know, the, the bigger the venue, uh, the bigger the radius clause. It's just usually how it goes. Like the biggest radius clause are for festivals. Um, sure. And the smallest would be for, you know, a place like Knitting Factory where are just like, just don't play in the same month. Um, as, you know, it just goes back to the philosophy of the radius clause is like the more shows you play, the less people are going to come to your shows because you're mm -hmm. playing all the time. So you're, you know, your value for one particular show goes down. Whereas if you shut off um, supply, demand will build. And if you don't play a show for three months and then you announce an album release show, that is going to perform much better than any of those other shows if you just did it once a month. So, you know, if a promoter is give, is guaranteeing like a more aggressive offer, I think it's in their right to say, you know, you know, we're, we'll pay you a fair amount for the show, but uh, we need you to not play any other shows so that we know it's a, uh, it, it's, it's going to be a really successful night for us. And in turn, like it'll be successful for the artists Like you want to see a full room and you, you know, so many artists here who I've booked on big support slots that it's their Super Bowl to bring in a huge film crew and film the band in a high def manner with a full room. And they're not just, you know, playing for their typical monthly spot for 30 people. Like they're now playing for 150 people because they decided not to, you know, take that $200 payday or whatever every month that they were getting and, you know, build up that demand to make a, Five hundred dollar um, guarantee for opening a, a bigger show in the market, and so you have to think about like besides just you know the money, unless you really need the money, um, uh, the optics of like playing so much and what it you know burning out your crowd and you know ingratiating yourself with different promoters and like you know if you do a good job for a promoter, you you then become on their short list of opening acts for bigger shows in the future. And there's so many artists mm -hmm. now you know, reached out to me that I have uh, just like kind of booked casually and didn't even, I've never even seen them before, but um, you know, I, I've heard great reviews from the the staff in New York saying like, this band was a great fit for this show. The show audience for the headliner really loved them. And then we did some local bills with that opening band in the future. And it actually like performed pretty well. And they made themselves some fans from the time they, they supported the headlining artists. So there's a whole bunch of strategy that goes into that, but um radius clauses um it really only starts to impact you once you, be, you know, once you're getting onto the bigger clubs right when booking do you have um are you alone or do you have like two or three people that sort of make the decision um i have like bosses they approve my offers yes um, beyond a certain threshold um, and that would be like one of the vps of live nation and um vp of brooklyn bowl um and they, you know, we're typically on the same page. They might say, Hey, I think that ticket price sounds a little high or, you know, let's submit a little lower and then we'll go up if they need to and things like that. You know, they, they're just older and have more experience. Um, 
So mm-hmm. I do have supervising my offers. There are a number of talent buyers within Live Nation and, and Brooklyn and Bowl that um, everybody puts shows into the room. It's not like I'm the only gatekeeper for um, Brooklyn Bowl. I'm just mm-hmm. one. I'm, I'm one of the the main ones. Um, and so everybody kind of acts as a lone wolf. We all have our own relationships, our own artists that we're really passionate about working with um, and conversations that we initiate on our own. Um, and if basically if you reel it in, it's yours to you know you, you eat what you kill. Um, I'm, I'm not the only direct contact for Brooklyn Bowl. You know, there's a colleague of mine in New York. Um, he's been at Brooklyn Bowl much longer than I have. So a lot of people, when they when they think Brooklyn Bowl, they think him, they call him. But if, mm-hmm. it's people, if it's people that I've worked with at City Winery and Knitting Factory in the past, that we just have our own separate relationship. And I, I've brought those relationships wherever I go. And we catch up just weekly about music and artists. Um, then maybe I start a conversation on that level. And then if somebody's doing a Live Nation touring deal, they're calling the Live Nation office in Philadelphia. And then it comes to us via Live Nation. So there are a number of different ways that the show gets on the calendar. It's not all just, uh, um, it's not all me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you ever run audition nights for an opening slot? Um, no, I've never done anything like that. Um, you know, like at the smaller clubs, you know, there's a booking um there's a booking address or just like you email the box office with like basically your pitch of like, Hey, we're, um, we're a band out of New York. Um, we just you know, did a couple shows at these clubs, um, with this turnout, here's a video from the show. Here's some new music we just released. Um, we're looking for, you know, support opportunities in the market. Like those emails will typically get a response or at least get cataloged for a rainy day. Um, we don't do, we don't need to do, you know, there's enough, content online and, and you know videos that I can make an assessment like okay there's a lot of people there this sounds okay this sounds sloppy um how many followers do they have online like what is their branding like do they have really high quality photos and are they taking themselves seriously and do they have a website um those things are often more important than just like getting on a stage in an empty room and, and playing a set um there's, there's so much um criteria that goes into um decisions like that and you know typically starter bands are not playing at Brooklyn Bowl like they need to be playing at the you know right. that's why, that's why the really small clubs and bars exist to like get experience um and to and to start working your way up there's 100 cap clubs there's 200 cap clubs there's 500 cap clubs and then there's a thousand cap clubs mm-hmm. and so it's a, a long way away I didn't make it up to the thousand cap cl- club level for um you know six years and so you know I, I think I see a lot of bands that are just like hey we're from upstate New York and we play in this bar and we're ready to come to Brooklyn Bowl. And to, it just uh, seems out of touch. All right. So what made you leave City Winery and move over? Size of the club? Just uh, more so like the the kind of music they were booking. Like I said, the demo at ah. City Winery was just, uh, you know, it's seated. So yes, it's better for quieter listening room, eat your dinner. Um, yeah. And so Brooklyn Bowl is just the opposite. It's loud. There's a bowling alley. There's fried chicken. It smells great. Um, you know, and it has obviously the history of like Grateful Dead and, and jam bands and and New Orleans music. It's kind of like a, a mixture between uh, Jazz Fest and uh, Hayden Ashbury. Um, and I was always a big fan of Peter Shapiro growing up as like uh, as as a promoter that I wanted to align myself with um, based on just musical taste and energy. Um, and so Brooklyn Bowl was a place I've always had my eye on and I've been networking with basically since I started at the cutting room to try to get on their radar, which is, you know, along the way, obviously you need to have experience, but you need to be on their radar. So when the opportunity does come up that they at least think of you and and, and give you an opportunity. Mm-hmm. To take. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a multi-pronged approach when you're trying to move up in the industry. Yeah. So what's the next step for you personally? Yeah, I'm, I'm not so not so sure. I mean, I'm in a great organization and um, things are really steady right now. There are more Brooklyn Bowls opening. Um, DC was announced. So like, you know, Live Nation's partnered with Brooklyn Bowl to finance the expansion of the franchise. And there's going to be probably more Brooklyn Bowls popping up. And as one of the earlier employees, like, I, I expect to have a hand in um, some of the booking of, of the new Brooklyn Bowls and um, spending more time between New York and Philly and DC and um, you know, they, we have the Capitol Theater as well in Portchester, which is an amazing venue. And so I'd love to um, get involved over there one day. But 
for now, you know, the Brooklyn Bull Philly has only been in, uh, we're going to be celebrating our second uh, anniversary next year. So it's still quite young and there's still some things to, um, to kind of iron out in terms of uh, how the venue operates and whether we're able to do multiple shows at one time and flipping the room and um, different creative ways to program the space. And so mm-hmm. I think there's still some chapters to be written here. Um, but um, yeah. I do love the company very much. Yeah, we were supposed to have Peter on. We haven't done it yet, have we, uh, Dave? No. Dave's a little slow reading his book. He's supposed to read the book first, and then have Peter. I haven't on. read it. I haven't read it either. I need to read it too. Ah, uh, it was good. If you like the dead, yeah. I mean, you know, the dead is on just about every page. Right. So, so Dave, is, I know you've been chopping at the bit there. Yeah, just a, a few things. So um, you, one of my questions had been, and you pretty much just answered it, the, the relationship with Live Nation, because you've been dropping that a few times. So that's a joint venture with Brooklyn Bowl. I believe they don't own Brooklyn Bowl, but they're in cahoots with you guys. And they're helping, like you mentioned, finance the other things. So explain, uh, Sarah Barnett, again, kind of talked about this. From your perspective as a talent buyer, you're sitting you know in the room where you are right now and if you're looking at we call them avails you know the dates that are available do you have a uh, like a google spreadsheet or something uh, that's a shared between you and the three or four other people responsible for booking philly and new york and you guys are just looking at that seeing what's available and then reaching out to agents for example or is most of it incoming uh, it depends on the time of year, the fall and the spring, most of it's incoming. Um, the summer, we're fishing a lot and same in the winter in January and February. Um, so it's seasonal. We do have a, a Google calendar with, you know, multiple access for all the talent buyers to see, you know, one is like, it's color coded. So if the show gets confirmed, it, then boom, it gets, you know, the date is now a different color. So you can see which dates are open, which dates are booked. Um, we also have like a tracker of offers that have been sent out. Um, you know, in order to follow up with with agents, because we send out you know dozens of offers a, a week, um, and it can be you can easily lose track, and you know that you're competing against other venues in the market, so you want to you know take initiative and be following up and say what can we do here to confirm the show, um, what did the other venues offer you? I'll match it, I'll exceed it, whatever, something like that. Um, so yeah, we are always in constant con- contact of like, hey. Um, this artist just reached out about this date. I have these other artists that were holding the date ahead. Um, I think that this artist that just reached out is probably a stronger fit for us. Let's see if we can move those other artists to another date or if push comes to shove, let's just take this new show because I think it's a better bar and better look for us or whatever it is. We have a bit of, of, of the ability to manipulate, um, who gets what date, you know, there is a system of holds where you're supposed to honor, like this person expressed interest in the day first, and then this person did, and then this person did. And so whoever reached out first, you know, it's first come first serve as they get priority on the date. Um, but as Brooklyn Bowl does so many um, private events, you know, private events kind of get the priority hold always. And thus, like, we can kind of use that as a vague way of, like, being, you know, selective with which shows we come from. We don't want an all-ages pop um, TikTok star to land on a Saturday night in October. Um, you know, we want we want to steer that to a Monday night when we'd otherwise be dark. And it's better for us to be open with a show than be dark. But we know, as we talked about, that that show has no bar revenue and the ticket price probably isn't high enough where we're doing a ticket split that's going to cover our expenses. So we play traffic cop a lot. Also, depending on what other shows are in the market, you know, thankfully with Live Nation, we have access to see, oh, uh, Zach Bryan's playing at um, the stadium tonight uh, or this night. And so we just got this avail for a, an old opener of Zach Bryan. We, there's no way in hell we can book the show that night because it's going to tank because everyone would rather go see Zach Bryan. So um, we use the calendar to mark you know special holidays to mark who else is playing in the uh who else is playing in the in, in the market who else has expressed interest in that date um we use it to say hey that no one's holding this date the shows in a, the, the dates in a month it's a saturday night in january you know that first weekend of january after um new year's eve is always a really hard hard date to book um nobody's touring and um you know we're, we're always filling it with the taylor swift dance party or some sort of um themed uh, live band or cover band or something like that so those are instances where it's like hey like we need to be open on a saturday night go find something to fill it and um and so we will and uh that's what we kind of use the the shared calendar for very interesting do 
those uh, events do well for you, the theme nights, whether it's an emo night, Taylor Swift night, Halloween type party night? Yeah, I mean, I'd say over after the pandemic, they kind of kept a lot of clubs in business when there weren't too many tours happening and people were still running to go out. But I think just since the just crazy overload of it has, uh, we've had diminishing returns and, you know, you can't keep going to the well for the same thing over and over again. And so um, we've kind of dialed it back a bit and we're more selective with like, all right, let's do this on Halloween weekend or like Taylor Swift's album came out today, um, the new 1989 album. So we have a, we're doing a Taylor Swift party in New York, uh, being more selective with it and, and more strategic with like booking it around an anniversary. We do a Beyonce's birthday party in, in February. So having an understanding of those like pivotal single de Mayo, stuff like that. There's like creative booking, um, uh, opportunities around uh, around like certain dates um but you know we used to just try to like plug and play so many of these dance parties every single weekend but it, it got to be too much and um you know again like when you're keeping your staff around for overtime for three hours and you're at from until 2 a.m and there's only 200 people in the room it's just not worth it um and so the numbers speak for themselves yeah that was my next wish is, is hours of the venue and number of shows per night how, how does how does that work during the week um i mean we'll do like we would do two shows a night always if we thought it was successful but um you know the challenges of our room is just like we're an upstairs venue with a small elevator so like actually loading in and out of the stage takes longer than it should um so we can't just like curfew a show at 10 and do another show at 11 and flip the room and like we're good to go because loadout can take a while we only have one green room um but on on weekends, like we do try to say, let's, you know, depending on the production of the early show, we'll need to say, hey, let's do a 1030 curfew on this. We'll then we'll strike the stage and we have a DJ for the next one. So it's not a heavy load in um, and we can start that 1130 and go till 2 a.m. So, we, you know, and, and that doesn't work for a Wednesday ever. Um, you know, it's only a weekend kind of booking. So same deal, like depending on the day of the week, time of the year, um, is there a show next door to the Fillmore? Like we're, we're very close to the Fillmore, um, which is like a 2,500 cap um, club here in Philadelphia. If there's a sold out show at the Fillmore, um, we just had Chapel Run play to the Fillmore and we did a Taylor Swift after party afterwards. And we stood outside and said, everybody come in to Brooklyn Bowl and let's hang out at the Taylor Swift after party. And not everyone came, but maybe 300 people came. And, um, and that was really successful for like an 1130 time where we weren't paying the artists that much um so we try to flip the room when we can we try to do downstairs activations in new york it's easier because there's a 4 a.m curfew so we do two shows a night almost every friday and saturday and we don't have to rush the artist out of there as much we can say it's an 11 30 curfew and then we'll start the late show at midnight um and go until 3 a.m so um you know depending on if the, if the show is going to be successful as a late night if it's a monday if it's a Monday night and Lil Wayne is doing a secret after party after his show at the arena and he's announcing it from the stage, like we're going to open for it um, because we know people are going to come. But if somebody's just pitching us an emo night on a Monday, then I would never book that because it's just not a good day of the week to, to do late night programming. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What about uh, merch fees? Uh, you're associated with Live Nation. They just made their announcement of uh, not doing merch fees for many venues of a certain size yet because you're not owned by live nation and sarah mentioned this for i know the answer for nashville but talk about uh in your spot in philly new york are you still charging merch fees or are you able to waive them uh philly we're, we're taking part in that on the road program that you mentioned um so artists are all getting 100 merch now um as well as um $750 in cash and a $750 gas card. Every artist that comes through here, support acts, whatever it is, DJs. Um, so that's a very generous program that artists love and is amazing because it doesn't, it's not coming out of the venue's pocket because that would just make the finances untenable for us to, to be giving everybody $1,500 on top of what we're already paying them. It's just not possible. Um, so the fact that Live Nation is like providing the capital for that is like huge and uh, obviously a good PR win for them and they're just doing the right thing. I don't know where the money comes from, but whatever, we're, we're not, I don't care too much about that. Um, so yeah, prior to that, we were doing, you know, 80, 20 merch splits. We, we normally do like 80, 20 on t-shirts, um, hundred percent on all recorded merch they can keep. Um, 
you know, again, it, it's another revenue stream where if, if the bar is, if it's not a big bar crowd and, you know, we're giving, we're, we're cutting a, a tight deal then, and the artist is selling, you know, often 10 grand in merch on a certain night, um, then yeah, 2000 of that to help the venue cover expenses, I don't think is, uh, has not been a, a, an absurd prospect, but, um, you know, there's been a lot of pushback on it and, um, I think the deal we have in New York is kind of the most fair. And what we do there is, um, it's a hundred percent of merch to the artist. Once the show, the ticket gross of the show, um, grosses the artist guarantee. So if, if the venue is not losing money on, on paying the artist, then you'll keep hundred percent of your merch. But uh, if the artist guarantee is $7,500 and we only make $5,000 in ticket revenue, then we're, we're not only losing $2,500 on the ticket sales, but we're losing, you know, the, all the house expenses on top of that, which is, you know, it can be $10,000 for a room of our size. So that's a huge hole. And therefore we need some of that merch revenue to like help cushion the blow because it's going to be a giant blow either way. Um, and so, you know, and if an art, if we made $7,500 in ticket sales then the artists would keep all the merch, even though we haven't grossed enough um, to help cover the expenses of the room. So I think that's something to keep in mind that like, just because you're paying the artist $7,500 and you make $7,500 in ticket revenue, you're still in the hole because you haven't covered any of your operating expenses. And there, and then all the bar revenue you're making when artists say, well, you keep the whole bar. It's like, well, all that bar revenue is now going to cover the cost of the security and the sound engineer and, and the food you just ate and the hospitality. Um, and so, you know, that's something to keep in mind as well. But um, for merch, yeah, I, I mean, it seems just like everyone's going the way of hundred percent merch, which is, you know, great um for artists and I, I don't think it makes that big of a drop of the bucket on the individual club level um but you know live nation as a whole like they definitely make millions of dollars um on merch across their clubs every year um just by taking that 20 percent. so like it's a significant sacrifice for the company as a whole but you know on the individual venue level it's not going to make that big of a difference so we're happy to um, make artists happy. And if it's an, uh, if it's another selling point to get artists to play our room, then that's more important to us. If it gets us five more shows a year, that's better than, um, you know, whatever, a few thousand dollars of merch that, that we would have gotten from the 20%. Mm -hmm. My last question, cause we're actually running out of time yeah. at this point is, um, just in terms of overall in your position, uh, communication wise, are you like an email guy? Are you a, a phone guy? Are you, uh, a text, a DM guy. What do you see in terms of how you communicate? Mostly, I would say with agents and uh, maybe people in the company, because uh, bands, if they don't know you, they're just trying to fill out a form and trying to get to you. But um, how does the communication mostly work? Because I'm years ago it was phone and then email came. But where is it now with you? I'd say it's primarily email um, because nobody's really working out of the office like consistently. Calling office lines is not. A guarantee of reaching someone and it just becomes a waste of time to leave messages. Um, you know, the, the, everyone's on their email all the time, morning, noon, night, and weekends. Um, so I certainly, if I get a work-related email, I answer it immediately. Um, it's, it's something that gets answered within 15 minutes, you know, always. Um, so I don't, I don't always find it faster to call someone. Like I, I do prefer talking through delicate situations like, Hey, like, um, the show is not selling well. We need to, uh, we're going to ask you for some money back because like this show is really tanking and we, we can't take this big of a loss. Those are phone calls. Um, you know, uh, if you're, if you've sent an offer and you want to check in on it, you know, rather than just saying following up on this offer, you know, there, that's a good opportunity for a phone call to instill some personality. If, if there's opportunities to, you know, strengthen your relationship on the phone, then you should be taking them and, and certainly in person as well. Um, but in terms of like executing the day-to-day, -day, like when is the show going on sale? Like that, that's fine just to, to put an email. I, I find email to be um, often faster than, you know, calling, leaving a message, waiting for a return and then calling them again, you know, and, and getting nothing, um, getting nothing done. I, I think the email is actually, is actually faster, but it doesn't help um, grow your relationship as much, which is like equally as important. One other, one other thing, because a student asked me this question the other day, and I'd love to have your your feedback. How far in advance of a show do you think it makes sense to announce the show? Is there a general rule, or for you, is it does it depend upon the show? What works for you in your venues, and maybe it's market by market. Yeah, standard. I'd say like at least three months, 
Um, you know, if it's a big underplay um, and it's going to sell out immediately, then sure, you can do it the, the day before, the week of. Um, and then, you know, sometimes it's just like, let's just get this tour out and get it rolling. Like a lot of times it's just like they're announcing a tour and those tours get announced six months out. Um, so you're just one of many dates they're announcing and they need runway to, you know, get the, all the marketing threads together for all 30 dates. And like, you know, they don't just want to roll that out with two months to go. You need to, a lot of time to promote a, a proper tour. But if it's just a, a one-off show, like minimum two, ideally three months. Awesome. Well, great. Well, this interview has not felt like three months. It's felt like five minutes because you're so good at it. <laughs> so quick. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this was good. We really appreciate your time today. Yeah. Marconi, are yeah. you happy, Marconi, with this? Yeah. It's great. Yeah, and I'll, I'll tell you what, you know, I'll go back to your first question that like, you know, I didn't go to, to school for this and like, I, I didn't know any of the jargon and vocabulary coming out. It definitely took me a full year of working as an assistant to know what a hold was, a challenge was, what an advance was. Sure. Um, and that stuff, you know, if you could come out of college with that foundation and, and start walking up to venues and, and knowing um, the, the fundamentals of it, I do think that that's a, 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 a leg up. So, you know, I don't, I don't want to throw shade on anyone uh, uh, studying music business underground. I think, uh, you know, I just don't think it's it's necessary when when you're just like walking into a club and and I don't even know if it, if it works that way because there's so few independent clubs now. But, um, yeah, you know, I, I think it's helpful to have any sort of foundation and knowledge of, of, of the inner workings because it is just like a giant machine. And um, if you can find a place for yourself in it, whether it's marketing or box office or production or booking, um, you know, there, there's no bad place to start. And I've seen people move from marketing roles to booking from, um, from uh, working at the bowling shoe desk to becoming the GM of a venue, especially in Brooklyn bowl. We promote a lot of people from within um, and all those people have, have had an understanding of every part of the business. So it's not like uh, you, you don't necessarily get locked in just because you become a, a marketing assistant doesn't mean that you're going to, you know, that's the only path that you're ever going to have an opportunity for. I think it's better just to get into an organization and, and, um, You'll, you'll, you know, peripherally, you'll, you'll get more understanding about how booking and production and, and operations works as well. Awesome. Okay. Perfect. Great. This interview worked well. So, Paul, at the end of every interview, we don't say hello because it makes no sense. Goodbye to Be- it was going to say goodbye to Becca. The listeners have no idea that Becca is here. Ah, List- listeners, there's a, a wonderful person. This Bye, was Becca. by Surefire Media and Becca Block. Uh, set this up originally for us. And she's been listening in very nicely and hasn't shown her face. And she's been kept out of the loop during the whole interview, which is great because she's not bothering us. But um, Paul, we want to thank you. And at the end of every show, we don't say hello. You know what we say, Paul? What do we say? We say adios! Adios, ciao, everybody.
Nothing but 